Well, we are finishing the book of James with a bang. <laughs> we just can't close the book without talking about another touchy subject. I've told you that this is the book of Ouch, because he doesn't really ever hold anything back. And as you can turn to James 5, I want to ask you for your participation and answering on what you think about this very calm and never debated subject. Can a Christian lose their salvation? What are your thoughts? Fire away. <laughs> think they can abandon it. You don't think they can lose it. The willful act. It's not like a set of keys. Look at God and say no. Yeah, I would say it's really easy to see a salvation. Like, who's like rocking a key because you got a key like that? You can't lose it like, accidentally. Yes. Can't lose it accidentally. Maybe you never had it to start with. Well, with all those answers fresh in our minds, I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word together. James 5, the last two verses. James writes, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, this is a subject that has been debated for thousands of years. Yet here am I, a rural pastor in a remote hill in Idaho. I desperately need your spirit. We thank you for your word, for it's all we need to discuss these issues. Help us to hear your voice with humility. Help us to take our presuppositions that we've been taught and lay them at your feet and say, does your word confirm this for me? And if it doesn't, help us to change our belief to your truth. Help us to conform our minds to yours so that we might know you more. Father, would you get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire and have your way in our hearts and minds. Give us open ears, willing hearts to hear everything today. We ask and pray these things in the name and power and work of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen. Maybe seated. I couldn't believe it, but I looked it up. This time, four years ago, it's already been four years, the mayor of Houston for a while was demanding pastors turn in any sermons for the city's viewing. If those sermons contained any material referring to gender identity or homosexuality, that ordinance didn't go too far. The mayor dropped that little bidding. But this isn't the first time a city or a government was demanding to see what their pastors were preaching. I'm going to give you a little church history lesson just because it's good for you to know history, and you probably won't get it anywhere else. So you're welcome. <laughs> Next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, which is usually the Sunday of or before October 31st, because on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther hung his famous 95 theses on the door of his church 
which dealt with teachings he felt were wrong in the Catholic Church. A little over 15 years later, one man named Nicholas Kopp was a rector at a college in France. He gave an inaugural address on November 1st, 1533, stating a need and a desire to change and reform the Roman Catholic Church. One of his listeners was a man named John Calvin. Kopp and Calvin and many at the college went the way of the reformers. Follow with me. Calvin's ideas of religion overtook France, the Netherlands, and Switzerland, and so forth. So that by a little half a century later, in August of 1609, something was happening in the Netherlands that was in a small measure similar to what happened in Houston. John Calvin had a successor named Theodore Beza, and that successor had a student named Jacob Arminius. The state was demanding Arminius and his followers to submit in writing their views that were contrary to the accepted views of the time, which was Calvinist-infused Protestantism. Arminius never got to turn in his work. By October 19th, Arminius had passed away. Tensions were still mounting, and Arminius and his followers posed some strikingly different views to Calvinists. See, in our day, if we disagree over big doctrines, we just split denominations. In their day, in literally entire nations could split. So in 1610, the followers of Arminius petitioned the government with what they called a remonstrance. And those followers are called remonstrants. Remonstrance comes from medieval Latin, which amounts to demonstrate or to show. The remonstrance produced five articles outlining the major points of contention between what Arminius and uh, Calvin were teaching. The last article is the longest, but it has everything to do with what we're talking about today, and I think it's a very solid, fair piece of writing. Now, before we look at it, I just want you to know this. I know it's not the Bible. <laughs> I know it's capable of error, but you listen to me for 40 minutes every Sunday, so we could probably look at this piece of writing that I believe is birthed from the scriptures. Article 5 of the Remonstrance begins this way, that those who are incorporated into Christ by a true faith and have thereby become partakers in his life-giving spirit, have thereby full power to strive against Satan, sin, the world, and their own flesh, and to win the victory it being well understood that it is ever through the assisting grace of the Holy Ghost, and that Jesus Christ assists them through his Spirit in all temptations, extends to them his hand, and if only they are ready for the conflict and desire his help and are not inactive, keeps them from falling, so that they by no craft of power of Satan can be misled nor plucked, out of Christ's hands. Let me break that down for you. So, those who are incorporated into Christ, that is, partakers of his spirit, Paul uses this language in Ephesians 3.6, that Gentiles are fellow heirs with Jews, part of the same body as the Jews, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
Paul says to the Philippians that they are partakers with me, that is Paul, of grace. Peter says that we are to become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And this article says that all partakers have full power to win the victory. That is, run the race faithfully to the end, it being well understood that this is by and through the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit. We cannot be plucked out of Christ's hands. We just sang that a few minutes ago. And it's directly from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. So are you following so far? Does that make sense so far? Simply put, those who have true saving faith in Christ Jesus have all the power and resources they need in God and God alone to be faithful to the end. And you're like, why didn't they put it that way? Well, we need something to talk about, don't we? So, Article 5 then continues. But whether they are capable, through negligence, of forsaking again the first beginnings of their life in Christ, of again returning to this present evil world, of turning away from the holy doctrine which was delivered them, of losing a good conscience, of becoming devoid of grace. And some of you are like, did Paul write that? Because that's not even a complete sentence yet. But just so you're tracking, the article is suggesting, if it's possible that genuinely saved, changed Christians, if it's possible by their own negligence and their own forsaking Christ and their beginnings of life in Christ and returning to the evil world, turning away from the doctrines, teachings, and life change that was given to them, and if they lose their conscience and become devoid, that is empty of grace, if they fall from grace, about this idea, the article finishes, that must be more particularly determined out of the Holy Scriptures before we ourselves can teach it with full persuasion of our minds. So, at the time that this article was written, they were saying the Scriptures seem to maybe suggest that. This article was written by followers of Arminius, but earlier Arminius himself wrote, I never taught that a true believer can either totally or finally fall away from the faith and perish, yet I will not conceal that there are passages of Scripture which seem to me to wear this aspect. And here's what I hear both in the article and Jacob Arminius himself. A pastoral, compassionate heart that says this is a weighty matter. And we never want to err in teaching the Bible. But neither do I ever want to offer anyone any reason to not work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Does that make sense? Do you hear that? James is talking to believers here in James 5, and he starts this last sentence with very familiar and close, friendly words. My brother, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth. Brothers is a term that the book of James has been using very often, always referring to those in Christ, who are brothers in the blood of Christ. So James is talking to believers, and then he says, if any among you, among who? The brothers, strays from the truth. Brothers can and do have the propensity to stray. And the truth here, James is not just using as a term for a doctrinal thing, but a doctrine and practice thing. 
As one of my commentaries states, what the mind thinks and the mouth confesses, the body must do. 1 John 1.6 states, If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Hmm. Calvin's sneaking out of there. <laughs> James, in his book, especially around the second chapter, tells us that saving faith is a living and active thing, not a dead faith. Faith that says, I believe in Christ Jesus, I believe he saved me from my sins, will only be counted as evident in the believer if that believer lives like it. Does that make sense? And so for a person to declare that what's in the Bible is true and that Jesus saves from sins is a person who should be saved from sin and saved from sinning. <laughs> you hear the difference in that? If a person declares that Jesus is Lord, they should be following Jesus as if he is their Lord. Now again, I'm not saying you should never, ever, 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 ever sin, or if you do, you're very, very, very bad, but I'm not, you shouldn't be making a practice of sin. Mistakes are understandable. So James says, if anyone among you strays from the truth, if the practicing of the truth is not evident anymore, how does a person stray? James 1.14 and 15 told us that each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Furthermore, they would go on to say that then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Can the believer lose his salvation? If a believer comes to Jesus and is saved, can that person suddenly become unsaved. Don't shoot the messenger today, folks. Don't hear me out. Hear the Bible out. If you have a Bible, I want you to see these verses in front of you, so humor me, even though it's going to be on the wall. If you have a Bible, I urge you to open it up to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel is past Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. Listen to what God says through Ezekiel, chapter 18, beginning with verse 24. <clears throat> Ezekiel 18, beginning with verse 24, reading through verse 25. But when a righteous person turns from his righteousness and practices iniquity, committing the same detestable acts that the wicked do, will he live? None of the righteous acts he did will be remembered. He will die because of the treachery he has engaged in and the sin he has committed. But you say, the Lord's way isn't fair. Now listen, house of Israel, is it my way that is unfair? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? Talking about life, talking about practice. And we're not talking about when a believer wakes up one day and has a bad day, commits a sin laments it, and heaven forbid between the time he committed the sin and is thinking about it, and he hates what he's done, but suppose he dies before he mouths the word, forgive me, Father, he's not going to hell. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about life choices. We're talking about a willful, I'm leaving the faith. I hate the Father. Whether it be with words or actions. 
And you can certainly not ever voice the words, I hate the Father, but live like you do hate him. That's the Old Testament. How about the New Covenant? Head over to Galatians 5 with me. The background of the Galatians, the book of Galatians, were believers who wanted to have their cake and eat it too, really. (laughs) They wanted Jesus, but in order to feel like they're really saved, they wanted to keep the law. Jesus fulfills the law. We're free in Jesus to, by faith, trust in him, and by his Spirit, grow in faith and grace. But these Galatians were saying, well, not to tick off Jews, and also to feel like we're really saved, we'll just keep the law. But we love Jesus, but we also want to keep the law. And generally speaking, Paul is saying it doesn't work that way. You're saved by Jesus alone. And listen to the words he has for them in Galatians chapter 5. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. So here's the picture. By Paul's own words, he's saying that they're in a state of grace to begin with. That is, in the benefits of Christ, his death and resurrection, in the body of Christ. But suddenly believers say, well, Christ saved me, but I can still add some more. And I can still guarantee God's satisfaction, and I think I'll keep the laws, because if I don't, God won't be impressed. (laughs) And the point is, is that we're not saved by our godliness. We're saved to godliness. That's a big difference. The former implies we think we can impress God. The latter relies upon God to be like him. You hear that? How about 1 Timothy chapter 1? Turn your Bibles forward, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and then 1st Timothy. And at the end of that first chapter in 1st Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy just precisely why he is writing. And he says, beginning with 1st Timothy 1, verse 18, excuse me, I'm trying to turn myself so I give you time to turn there. First Timothy 1, beginning with verse 18. Paul writes, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by them you may strongly engage in battle, having faith in a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. Hymenius and Alexander are among them, and I have delivered them to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. There in verse 19, some have rejected these, right? What have they rejected? These instructions. They've not fed their faith. They've not exercised godliness. And in doing so, they have suffered and shipwrecked their faith. Does shipwreck mean lost? Paul goes further and he says, I've delivered them to Satan. If they're under the power of Satan, are they saved? Not until further notice would be my guess. They had faith, and they shipwrecked it. You're in 1 Timothy. Turn with me three books nearer to the end of your Bibles, to Hebrews. Chapter 2. A few more verses, and then we'll get back on track in James, your troopers, if you're following. 
If not, I'll throw something at you. I'm just kidding. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Okay. <laughs> the author says, We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So along the lines of what Paul said to Timothy, the author here charges his listeners to pay attention to what we heard. Be diligent in our faith, or what? So that we will not drift away. Verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What happens when you neglect a great salvation? What happens when you neglect salvation means deliverance. What happens if you're in the middle of a war and an out shows up and the rescuer says, last chance, come with me, and you neglect it? If you neglect salvation, you neglect being saved. Turn ahead one more chapter in chapter 3 of Hebrews the subheading in the middle of chapter 3 in the HCSB says warning against unbelief. And here are the similar warnings we've heard so far. Hebrews 3, 12-13 says, Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Watch out, brothers the term for Christian believers, so that you won't have or be led away by an unbelieving heart? Well, so we would ask, well, were they ever believers? And, the, and then the author continues, that departs from the living God. Implying that they're with the living God right now, but watch out so that you might not depart. Turn ahead to Hebrews 10, Background of Hebrews is similar to Galatians, a bunch of believers tempted to revert back into Judaism. They're being persecuted by both Jews and Romans, but hey, Romans are okay with Jews, so why not be Jewish again and do away with the persecution? Listen to the warning that the author says in Hebrews 10. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For the one who deliberately sins, that is, makes a mockery of Christ's resurrection, not the person who messes up or the person who's striving against sin, but the one who deliberately, like, I don't care, I'm going to sin, it feels good, and I have no intention of stopping. For that person, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will deserve the one who has trampled on the Son of God? Right. This is what your sacrifice means to me. <laughs> Regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by when she was sanctified. 
So the author is saying the blood has sanctified the very person who is in turn trampling the Son of God. He's saved. Or at least it seems like this author is suggesting was saved. The blood did sanctify him, but now he has insulted the Spirit of grace. You're in Hebrews. I'll look at one more passage before we get back to James. Even if you have a finger in James, you go there and turn your head two books to Second Peter chapter 2. And we'll look at verse 1 there. Second Peter chapter 2. Judging false teachers, listen to what Peter says. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. They even deny the master who bought them. They've been bought by who? The master. How? By his blood. Apparently, these false teachers could have been at one point saved, or Peter could refer to the entire human race who's been bought, and maybe these people were never Christians, but they bring swift destruction on themselves. So do you see why the remonstrance stated about the possibility of believers losing their salvation? That it must be more particularly determined out of the Holy Scriptures before we ourselves can teach it with the full persuasion of our minds, or why Arminius said, I never taught that a true believer can either totally or finally fall away from the faith and perish, yet I will not conceal that there are passages of Scripture which seem to me to wear this aspect. And we come back to the book of James, and I want to weave all the warnings we just read to what James is saying. And he says, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth, you is very important. Friends, it is the fault of the person when they endanger their salvation, endanger their faith. It is the fault of the person when they stray from the truth. Again, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Which is why over and over in the passages we just read, fault is laid on the person. When they stray from the truth, or pleading is given to such persons to not neglect their salvation, to not drift away, to pay attention to what they've heard. So, when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is comforting. But I must ask, is it comforting for the non-believer? Is it comforting for those who may have wished to not be in his hand anymore? When Paul says, Romans 8, 38-39, For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus as Lord. All this is true, but Christ demands to be believed. And in order to be saved, 
Christ demands to be followed in order to be saved. And though God's love is pursuing you and me to the very end, I believe it. Even for those who fall away, Christ is still pursuing to the very end. We must receive it. We must yield to it. We must accept it. We must always trust in him. The Bible teaches there are some occasions when people who backslide and leave the church, and they were never Christians. Like John says in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Other times I hear what the Bible says about those who deny the pastor who bought them, and regardless of what I believe, again, I should always conform my beliefs to truth, the Bible tells me that sadly and unfathomably, on my part, some people they have truly been in a state of grace, might fall from grace. They might truly go from right-hearted to rebellious. They go from believer to unbeliever, but it's not any fault on God's. It's on them and them alone. It's not that God has released his grip so much that the enemy has plucked them, but such persons were enticed and lured by their own desires came to a willful rejection and came to a spot of vulnerability due to their own desires, thereby leaving Christ's grip and have become vulnerable for the enemy. Does that make sense? How so, you might ask? John Wesley once taught a quadrilateral uh, theology that there are four ways to look at theology. He says that there's scripture, first and foremost, that there is personal experience, that there is church history and tradition, and then there's one more that I forget, <laughs> but I'm... Scripture, experience, tradition, and... Reason. 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 There we go. Thank you. Why does the wayward child neglect their loving parents and long to be separated from them? Is it that the parents have led them to that point? Or that children have followed their own desires to the point of leading them in way, away in spite of what it might do to them. Experience. We have to believe what the Bible is saying is true or else the weight of James' urging here fails. He says and finishes his book this way, If any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. The early Quakers were never hesitant to use wartime imagery. They often said that we are in a lamb's war. And it's taken from passages where Paul says things like, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. firm. We are to be donned in the armor of God to fight in a spiritual battle. And in a battle, if we're not careful, there are casualties. What James is in essence saying is to be a fellow soldier and to look out for your fellow man. I use this wartime imagery to speak of its urgency, to speak of your and my responsibility, and that is if you turn someone back, that is if you confront the unbeliever and you work with them on their unbelief, and if you bring them back into the fold, if you pray for them to return to God, who wants everyone to be saved, 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth, so tells us Paul. And by God's grace and his power, those people do return. James says this to you, fellow soldier. Let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. We're in a war, friends. And the enemy is attacking all the time. Some are vulnerable. Some are under fire. Some are tempted to retreat. And what James is saying in these final verses is that it's real and that people's lives are on the line. But we are not left alone. The first thing that you can be doing for those who may be retreating and the best thing you can be doing is praying to God. Because as we talked last week, prayer matters. And as Silas read earlier in Jude, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Here's what I believe two things that I can think of might happen when we uncover the scary verses in the Bible that we just read and seems to speak to the reality of believers falling away. The first thing is that we can fret. We can fear. We can say, I hope I don't lose my salvation like I lose my keys. <laughs> Before you get superstitious and fearful, that's about as serious of a fear as saying, I hope I stay human. I believe this with all of my heart. You'll keep your salvation as long as you genuinely desire to keep your salvation as the Bible lays out. And I say those last words because I believe there are a lot of people who believe once saved, always saved, exactly the way Paul says it doesn't work. Shall we keep on sinning so grace may abound? Of course not. But there are people who will say to God, Lord, Lord, but Jesus says, I never knew you. But through the power and the Spirit of God, and by definition of being a true biblical believer, you will keep your salvation. Because we've explored all the verses that warn the believer not to neglect or drift away, let us not overlook what God is doing to the tenderhearted. What God is doing to those who love Him, what God is doing to those who believe. I love what Jude says immediately after he charges believers to keep yourselves in the love of God. Look at the well-known doxology, but now to Him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And that's the second thing I believe in all the verses concerned with forsaking salvation instead of losing. Concerned with those who would wander, drift away, and not keep diligent is that I believe God has warned us not so that we can fret losing our salvation, but so that we might be propelled, pushed, humbled, and yielded all the more every day to Jesus Christ. We might look at ourselves and say, Oh Lord, is there any way I might be saved? And no, I am saved. And he says to us, like the first time we began our relationship with him, and that is, yes, trust me. Yes, rely on me. Yes, depend on me. Yes, when you are faithless, I am faithful. Yes, in me, you will be saved and are saved. God is able to protect you from stumbling. 
and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Why would anybody want to leave that? I don't know. <laughs> but for those of you who are afraid, rely on him all the more. As one pastor I've listened to said, I believe in the perseverance of the believer. <laughs> I believe in the perseverance of those who love Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you've invited us into a relationship with you. And your love is unconditional. Your grace is always sufficient. Father, it's humbling to know that you are pursuing us even while we're with you and even when we're tempted to stray. And Father, it's humbling to know that you've charged the believers to look out for one another, to be fellow soldiers in this war, to save people from stumbling. But at the end of the day, what do we have to rely on? Rely, and that is you and you alone. Father, if any people take fear in what your word has said about falling from grace, departing from the living God, Father, remind them again that you are pursuing us and remind them again that as long as we genuinely want to be saved, we will be saved. Help us, keep us from stumbling, keep us from straying. Father, there are many people that we are thinking of that have departed from the way. When we take fear, help us to take hope that you're a great, big God, that you pulled people like Saul, who was murdered Christians, out of his ways, and put them on the right track with you. Help us to take hope in that. Help us to obey what James is calling us to hear. Be fellow soldiers and come alongside them. Father, we thank you and we love you and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.